From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. The Diz Unplugged podcast, Disneyland edition, is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello, and welcome to the Diz Unplugged Disneyland Edition, episode 594 for the week of July 18th, 2017. The Walt Disney Company celebrates the official opening date of Disneyland as July 17th, 1955. To celebrate this anniversary, I am honored to have as my guest on this episode of 60 Years of Disneyland, Disney historian and author Jim Corcus. Jim is an award-winning teacher, a professional actor and magician, and a published author with many books to his credit, from Disney to animation to comic strips to The Three Stooges to I Love Lucy to Sherlock Holmes. He is also considered an authority on film history, vaudeville, animation, and more. Jim is an internationally recognized Disney historian whose research has been used repeatedly by the Disney Company for a wide variety of projects. He has worked with Disney University, Disney Entertainment, Disney Institute, Walt Disney Imagineering in Florida, Disney Feature Animation Florida, Disney Vacation Club, and the Disney Cruise Line, among many other divisions. His work has also been used by the Disney Family Museum, and Diane Disney Miller wrote the foreword for his first Disney-related book, The Vault of Walt, which now has five volumes. And isn't another one about to come out? Yes, yes. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> He, okay, this is now here's here's where we really get into something interesting. He was a winner on the Gong Show. Okay, Jim, you got to tell the us. Quasimodo Belairs singing, <laughs> dancing hunchbacks. Quasimodo, do you know who's going to win the third race? No, but I got a hunch. <laughs> and so I went on with uh, my brother Michael, who uh, is actually a casting director at uh, Walt Disney World, so he's the one who casts people in the Indiana Jones uh, uh, stunt show and, and some of the other uh, shows on property. He started as a, a streetmosphere performer at Disney MGM and then worked his way up to director, and now he's a casting agent, but he was one of the Quasimodo Bel Airs, and, and we did not get gonged. We won. We were, oh. we were a uh, audience favorite. And then uh, with my brother Mike and my brother Chris, we also appeared on the dating game. And they thought it was very funny to have three brothers who uh, couldn't get a date. And so they brought out a, a woman by the name of Desiree, who was a stunt woman at uh, Universal Studios Hollywood. And uh, it was a nice dress that she was almost wearing. And... Um, Unfortunately, she had a boyfriend who was a stuntman who was like uh, 6'5", uh, 250 pounds, whatever, in the audience. And so at the end, uh, none of us got to go on uh, a, a date with her. Um, uh, she had only come on the show so she could get, um, as actors called, get a reel which is, uh, uh, you know, uh, clips of you on TV to show how you would look on TV because some people in real life look really nice, 
but the camera doesn't love them. And oh, and tell vice me versa. About it, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I always tell people when they take my picture that if if I don't look like George Clooney, there's something wrong with their camera phone. <laughs> they need to take that back and get it replaced. And then from there, I went on to um, uh, other game shows, uh, Family Feud. Uh, then there was a game show called Camouflage. It only lasted for about uh, two or three months. And the premise of Camouflage was they showed you this big picture, which had all these different elements in it, and you had to trace some image, like a, a, a screwdriver or a fire hydrant, that was somehow hidden in that image. And you were asked questions, and um, each question that you answered correctly they removed some camouflage and you were playing against another person. So if they spotted it quickly, you know, you could do that. And, um, uh, fortunately I, I spotted it quickly because on the way to the studio, my car broke down. And so I literally had to push it, uh, a couple of blocks to the parking lot of the studio in the process of which, I broke my belt. So I'm on TV holding my pants and trying to trace this image. And uh, when, you know, and you, I think, oh my gosh, I've, I've done this, but there's nothing happening. And they purposely delayed <laughs> revealing that I had gotten it right. And my pants almost fell down as I was jumping up and down because. I had just won this Cadillac. Oh my gosh! Wow! And, and it and it was cherry red. It was from Casa de Cadillac, and you don't get it right then and there. I was hoping, oh, I've got a car to drive home now. What they do is they give you a credit for a certain amount of money, and you go down to Casa de Cadillac, and you can get a car for that amount of money and then anything above that. So for instance, if you wanted some extras or whatever, you have to pay. Uh. And so it was a $20,000 car. And I thought, my, well, my gosh, you know, I, I could buy five cars for $20,000. Um, and uh, so I went to Casa de Cadillac and, and they said, and I said, well, you know, I've, I've got the voucher from, from the game show and, and all that. And, uh, so I said, you know, but I don't want to spend anything over this. I, I only want to spend up to $20,000. And so we literally had to walk a mile to the back of the lot where they had five cars that were, that you could get for up to $20,000. <laughs> Everything else <laughs> was, was one of them much, a red much more Cadillac. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and again, you know, on these, uh, uh, in fact, I was on a, um, a game show that n that I won, but I never got the money because the show never aired. It was called Origins, and it was filmed at the uh, Filmation um, uh, studio lot. Filmation was a, a, a studio that did an awful lot of Saturday morning animated uh, uh, cartoons, um, you know, like uh, uh, Flash Gordon and the Superman cartoons and, mm -hmm. and things like that. And they were trying to get into live action. And they had done a couple of half-hour live action shows for Saturday morning. Um, 
but they were doing this game show called Origins, and the premise of the game show was they give you a phrase or an expression, and um, then they give you three possibilities of where that came from. And uh, if you guessed right, and uh, you kept guessing right, because again, you're competing against two other people, uh, you know, you could win. And so I won $10,000, but I never got it because the show, uh, they took the show out and tried to sell it, and the show never uh, uh, sold. So since the show never sold, you don't get the money. That, that, that's the way it works. And, and how I won is because I knew the origin of uh, the expression ham actor. <laughs> and the, and because again I have a theater background I've I've performed in in a lot of uh uh, uh plays uh well over uh, 200 uh professional productions uh in the Los Angeles area but also I've done some film I've done some TV all of that but I knew what ham actor was cuz I'm a history guy I'm always interested in history and what happened is you know, in the uh, 1800s and uh, right around up, uh, up until the uh, uh, beginning of the 1900s, uh, makeup was not the makeup that we use today, the nice pancake makeup that Max Factor came up with. It was grease paint. And grease paint goes on wet and stays on wet. And you try to powder it so because if you touch it, it, c it can smear. But it is a pain in the uh, pancake can come off with uh, soap and water, but with grease paint, you know, it, it's oil based, so water is not going to get this off. So in the old days with melodrama, uh, melodrama theater, uh, actors to get that off would use um, pork rind. To, to, to get off all of that oil. And so then they would go into a saloon smelling like a pig. And so they were called ham actors. And since this was the time during melodrama, and melodrama is where you're doing these extreme gestures and all of that, and you're doing that because the lighting is so bad, you have to take these distinct poses and really articulate, you know, so that people in the back can hear. And so ham actors then became associated with people who overacted. Now, none of this has anything to do with Disney, <laughs> other, other than the fact that Walt um, uh, was always interested in, in, in the stage, wanted to be an, an actor. One of the reasons he loved uh, Peter Pan is because as a kid, there was a traveling uh, company with Maud Adams, who was famous for doing the role of Peter Pan. She was the first uh, American to do the role of, of uh, mm -hmm. Peter Pan. She also defined the fact that you have a mature woman playing Peter Pan because uh, a, a young kid can't, uh, you know, get all of those uh, subtleties and all that. He saw, he broke his piggy bank, and he and Roy went and saw this. And then his local school decided to do a version of it, and Walt was cast as Peter Pan. And they wrapped a rope around his waist and hauled him up, and Roy was the one assigned to hang on to this rope 
while Peter Pan's flying in the air. But Walt, of course, gets very enthusiastic. <laughs> he starts swinging back and forth. You know, he he's pushing the limits of all of this, and Roy can't hang on. And so Walt goes flying out right into the first two rows <laughs> of the audience <laughs> that was there. And, uh, and that was Walt's first experience with Peter Pan. And so he said, you know, I was even better than Maud Adams because I actually flew. Yeah, I was just thinking that. <laughs> oh, what a great story. Well, well, Jim, we're, we're so happy that you're on the Dis Unplugged Disneyland edition. Well, I, I'm, I'm happy to be on, on uh, <laughs> Dis Unplugged, you know? Oh, yeah. gosh. And You'd be goofy if you didn't listen to Diz Unplugged all the time. <laughs> yep. Huh, gosh, that's right. Uh, I used to teach a class at the Disney Institute called Voices of Disney. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I've also done some voice work uh, for Disney as well, which is a, a very interesting <laughs> experience. Because when you do... Um, Performing for Disney, there's a Disney contract that says they own the rights to everything you have done in the known universe <laughs> or the universe yet to be discovered and in every media yet to be invented. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and, and the reason for that is Peggy Lee... Um, did work for Lady and the Tramp, and um, she composed. She did the lyrics for the the song. She did uh, uh, voices for uh, uh, Peg, the the character of the 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 dog in the uh, uh, pound there, and all of that. When videotapes came out, they released Lady and the Tramp, and Peggy Lee sued. She said the contract that I have was just for you know, doing the film and arrangements, special arrangements, because, again, she she was a, a singer, so she was under contract to uh, a different um, label and so got, you know, a waiver where her voice could be used on the soundtrack album that was released. Vinyl, for, for those young listeners out there. And so <laughs> she sued, and she said, if this is on videotape, this is a new medium, and we have to renegotiate the contract, and you have to pay me. And this went on for years, and she won. <laughs> I, I do remember this, yeah. And, 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 and Disney purposely dragged it on for years because she was in bad health, and uh, they thought, well, she'll pass away before you know this gets resolved, and it'll be easier to negotiate with her estate. But she hung in there, and she won, and so Disney literally, uh, that's why sometimes we don't see um, uh, certain uh, uh, things anymore or they weren't released to home video, is because they were afraid that uh, people like Buddy Ebsen or Buddy Ebsen's estate would come back and you know sue Disney. That's why we don't see Disney Family Album, which I love right. on Walt I, Disney, and would I, love to have a. You know, I was it, just it's like thinking that they can't find Buddy Ebsen's contract. Buddy Ebsen signed one; they can't find it. So, uh, and with Buddy Ebsen gone, 
now. Um, they, uh, you know, they don't want to deal with the estate and, and all of that. So now they have this ironclad contract that Disney has the rights to your voice and your performance in everything. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, it, if, if, if they want to use you in Pokemon Go, that's it. You've signed away <laughs> everything here. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's an interesting experience. But we've gotten off, off the, the whole uh, uh, track here. You've got, you've got to rein me in here because well, there's, pl- there's plenty of stories. I know. There's so many. You t- it's just I just get mesmerized by them. Well, now, Jim, you, you're on the show because you've just authored a new book, The Unofficial Disneyland 1955 Companion, The Anecdotal yes. Story of the Happiest Place on Earth. And since we are so Celebrating the 61st anniversary of Disneyland mm-hmm. this week, uh, this—it just seemed like you were the perfect person to have on. So, Jim, yeah, what- and, and 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 quite a different Disneyland today than uh, uh, in 1955. Certainly, there are echoes from 1955, and certainly, you know, um, there's that sentimental feeling you get when you when you walk in Disneyland that Walt walked here. You know. Mm-hmm. This was this was his his uh, uh, dream. One of the Imagineers who worked with Walt that uh, that I got a chance to uh, interview said uh, we always described uh, Disneyland as the biggest toy in the world for the biggest boy in the world. <laughs> and um, Roy O. Disney, Walt's older brother, uh, said. Um, uh, Everybody who comes to Disneyland is only ten years old, mm-hmm. and 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 I think that's true. I think even today, when we we step into Disneyland, um, there's a whole different feeling. There, uh, you know, it it, it it's almost like uh, being healed. You know, even though you're worried about, boy, I got to rush to that ride, and you know, the, the fast pass and Oh, there's too many people here, and it's too hot. There's still this feeling of, wow, this is really nice. <laughs> Absolutely, this is good stuff. You know, th- this this you know uh, helps me to uh, have a sense of hope, a, a, a sense that you know people people are good. That uh, that uh, it really is going to be a great big beautiful tomorrow, yeah. and uh, that was Walt's you know, initial, uh, um, intent and, and that ha- that has survived 61 years. Absolutely. I know when I walk down main street, I just get this feeling of peace you mm-hmm. know, and, and just of happiness. Now, now in your book, you address the question of whether Disneyland's official opening date was <laughs> July 17th or July 18th, 1955. Yes. So wh- why are these dates debated? And I know you're going to give us the definitive answer, right? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly uh, uh, going to try. And, and, and again, officially, from the, uh, you know, the Walt Disney Company, the official date is now uh, July 17th, 1955. But that really did not become the official date until 1980. And, and how it became the official date in 1980 is that on July 17th, they did a 25-hour celebration. So um, 
uh, started at uh, 12.01 on July 17th and ended at, uh, 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 on uh, the morning of uh, July 18th. And from then on, it's been July 17th because people have seen that um, uh, television uh, opening, uh, Dateline Disneyland. Mm-hmm. And that was so impressive. And you saw people running around and you go, Disneyland's open. And and you hear Art Linkletter and Bob Cummings say, this is the opening of Disneyland. It wasn't. It was a press preview. Just like you have previews for, for motion pictures. You know, I, I know a lot of people are excited this week that uh, Ghostbusters is is coming out and some other films. But these films have already premiered overseas. You know, it's like b- before, you know, The Secret of Life of Pets has opened, it's already a box office uh, uh, smash in, in Germany and, and England, and it's brought in, you know, a certain number of millions of dollars. And so Walt saw July 17th as, you know, this is a preview, and we're filming it because we want to generate, you know, some buzz so that people will get excited to come to Disneyland. And, uh, again, Disneyland wasn't open uh, for the full period that Disneyland usually is. And in, in, uh, originally Disneyland, uh, you know, would open about 10 and then uh, close at 10. Uh, Disneyland didn't officially open until, you know, later in the morning, early afternoon, because again, bringing people in, you know, for the filming that was going to take place, um, uh, in the afternoon. And there, there had been people who had come and visited Disneyland before, July 17th. Walt had brought uh, many of his top animators who were members of what was called the Penthouse Club, Mm -hmm. which was a health club which was on the top uh, floor of the building. But the animators, instead of going in there and, you know, tossing the medicine ball around and all of that, would smoke and play poker and things like that. But they they were the the top echelon. So they and their families had, had come and and visited and spent a day at, at Disneyland. And so July 18th was considered, this is the opening of Disneyland, and if you take a look, and again, I did research, um, extensive research for, for, for the book, and one of the things you want to do is, when you put a fact, you want to have three independent sources to back it up. So, you know, you don't, uh, on, on the Internet now, uh, it's crazy because people just cut and paste, you know, and so you can, you can tell that you go to one site and it has this, and then you go to the next site and they're using the exact same words yes. and you thought, think, well, I know where they got that from. And it just seems to, you know, like rabbits multiply. So you want to find three independent sources, uh, to verify that. And so all of the newspapers, in the Los Angeles area, including the Los Angeles Times, says Disneyland opens July 18th. Uh, all of the publicity that was sent out uh, from Disneyland Incorporated, and Disneyland Incorporated was a separate company from the Disney Studios. Later, the Disney Studios bought Disneyland Incorporated, but Disneyland Incorporated was a separate division that just ran Disneyland, and the publicity guy was Eddie Mech. And, um, and, and in fact, he had huge ears, and so um, people in the publicity uh, community used to call him Mechie Mouse. Uh, 
<laughs> and uh, one of the things that Eddie said was, not even a postcard goes out of here without Walt's approval. And so the publicity packet uh, for July 17th, given out to the uh, uh, all of the reporters and all of that, Disneyland opens 10 o'clock July 18th. And in fact, uh, there are, are two different, uh, there's the publicity release, and then there's that fun fact. Uh, sheet in there, and the fun fact sheet also lists, lists July 18th. And um, there, there are several sources. And, and in fact, um, in, in the uh, years, uh, uh, the next few years, while Walt was alive and while Roy was alive, newspapers and all would say Disneyland finished its first year at the end of July 17th, July 18th is the beginning of the second year of Disneyland. And uh, Roy Disney felt that July 18th was the official um, uh, opening because that was the first day that people had to buy a ticket. People had to buy tickets for the rides, uh, all of that. He, he drove down there that morning worried that nobody was going to uh, show up. And he ran into to, to traffic. He ran into, you know, the parking lot was packed. And a uh, uh, one of the poor guys handling parking came running up to him and said, "Mr. Mr. Disney, you know, they they've been you know bumper to bumper out there, and and there are kids out here and they're peeing in the parking lot." <laughs> and Roy looked at him and said, "God bless them, let them pee." <laughs> I'm just so glad they're here and they're buying a ticket, you know, uh, for this. So all of this, while Walt was alive and while Roy, his brother, was alive, July 18th was the date. There was no, you know, but but that image of that Dateline Disneyland special is just so overpowering. You think Disneyland's open. It's not a press preview. It's the first day. The first kids who came into the park, that's July 18th. Mm -hmm. um, Dave McPherson, who is, is, um, is credited as being the first person to buy a ticket, uh, an admission ticket for Disneyland, that's July 18th. And, and, and in fact, when I talked with, with Dave, he, he said, yeah, you know, you saw the special and every uh, you, you saw in newspapers and you saw in radio reports and they said, don't come to Disneyland today. It's not open. It, it's just for invitational guests only. You know, it'll be open tomorrow. And uh, he said, I went down there and he, he, he said, I wanted to be the first. I wanted to be the first person who was not you know, a relative or uh, somebody from the media to get into the park. And, and he was. But, but again, as I said, uh, once Roy passed, uh, you know, things, uh, you know, started to... Uh, the Disney Company is a company based on oral history. This was very true with the animation studio as well. You know, if you had a question about Steamboat Willie... They would say, go see uh, Ub Iwerks down in Special Processes. He worked on that. He'll, he'll tell you that. Disney was always so busy doing things and then going on to the next thing that they never sat down and recorded any of this. And, um, you know, and so as people left, uh, 
as people um, uh, died, as people got older, and I, I found this when I interviewed people for the book, is, you know, they would blend, you know, things together, especially if they later worked on Walt Disney World. I, I ran in, I run into that all the time, is that the people confuse what they did at Walt Disney World with what they did at Disneyland, which, which you know, I, I think is, is natural, although first time I stepped into Walt Disney World, it was like a Twilight Zone experience. It was similar and yet completely different. Yes. You know, I, I, I started telling people, yes, just go over by the Pinocchio ride. What do you mean Pinocchio ride? There's no Pinocchio ride here. <laughs> Kingdom. What? No, no. Wait, just go through the fort to Frontierland. There's no fort entrance into Frontierland. What? No, no, wait, wait. This is all wrong. <laughs> this is the Twilight Zone. I'm lost. I'm on an alternate world. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I, fortunately, it was Roy Disney who, you know, decided you know, we need to have a Disney archives and, and have, you know, this information. And so that's when he brought in uh, uh, Dave Smith in 1970. And Dave said, this was just incredible. I, I, he, he said, I was going around and, and there were documents that were underneath the leaking pipes. Uh, there were things shoved into closets that nobody had looked at, you know, for years, if not decades. You know, we couldn't find a lot of stuff and, 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 and all of that. So, um, you know, once Roy, you know, went on, you know, you, you go on and, and then you get a marketing person who gets a great idea of let's do a 25 hour, you know, uh, a thing. When did Disneyland open? Oh, well, that I saw that. That was uh, July 17. Okay, that's it. Well, well, speaking you know? of that opening day broadcast, I know, you know, you, you're right, we've all seen that. But there's been, in, in your book, you know, you talk about, you know, we didn't see everything that went on. And I know no. over the years, they've cut things out of the, uh, and we now have an official video where that's not the complete broadcast. No. So what... <laughs> What, what what are the things that we didn't see or the things that maybe the younger generation has um, has not had an opportunity to see because it's been removed from the official video? Well, you, you need to realize uh, that Disney now, now, now that it's become not just a mom and pop company, but an entertainment empire, has what is called an approved narrative. And, and most big companies have that, you know, you don't want to destroy the brand. You want to, uh, you know, uh, you only want history. This is why I'm not working for the Disney company as a Disney historian is not only don't they know this stuff, they don't want to know that stuff because it may prevent them from doing stuff. Um, so, uh, for instance, in the uh, 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 tape that is out there now, there are huge sections of uh, the Mouseketeers performing that no longer exist. Right. Because, uh, again, uh, it's that whole Peggy Lee uh, uh, type of thing is that uh, some of the Mouseketeers sued. You know, we did this for the, uh, for the TV show, but... Now, you know, you're, you're rerunning some of these things, and, and we should be getting compensated, 
you know, uh, uh, for this because, you know, we got paid pretty much um, a scale. And uh, for those who are not familiar with that term, uh, the entertainment unions like SAG and AFTRA and Equity and all of that establish what is a minimum payment to pay an actor for X different things. You know, doing X, you get paid this. Doing Y, you have to get a, paid a minimum of this. You have to have a, a break. You know, that that's why um, with the characters at the park, uh, they're on for 30 minutes and they're off for 30 minutes. That's that's the entertainment union requirement. And if it's really hot, like it's been in Florida lately, it's 20 minutes on. You know, um, so all of those things are... are uh, 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 to protect you, you know, and, uh, again, you know, uh, uh, Disney also cut the uh, opening broadcast of Dateline Disneyland because, uh, again, they felt, well, this is boring for people or these things no longer exist at the park, you know, and so it's not going to make sense to people and we don't want to have to explain to people what these things are, you know, and, uh, well, I know, like, they so cut again, the Jack Rather section at the Phantom Boats. Mm -hmm. He was only there briefly, but I thought, oh, what a loss. I mean, that's... No, he, he, he was there much longer, and in fact, Ronald Reagan um, messed up. This is one of the stories that's, that's not in the uh, uh, book here. I, I have plenty of stories I can tell you that are not in the book. But uh, Ron, Ron, he, Jack Rather was there because Jack Rather was building the Disneyland Hotel. Mm -hmm. And so Ronald Reagan was supposed to interview him extensively about the Disneyland Hotel so that would generate, you know, people wanting, oh, well, if we go out there, we can stay at the Disneyland Hotel. It's right across the street. But Reagan forgot because, again, they weren't given a script script. They were given uh, a rough outline and sometimes some some talking points. And yes, that section was longer, but the phantom boats didn't work. What happened is they were made out of fiberglass, which was the new, huge, wonderful thing. But since they were in the, they enclosed the motors in fiberglass. And so the motors would overheat. Mm -hmm. And so the phantom boats would be stuck out there in the middle of the lagoon and cast members had to go out and literally pull them back in with ropes. And so, you know, you got to see a sense of that, but you don't want to see that on the official video, you know, that <laughs> this stuff isn't working and that, you know, you're, you're not plugging the, uh, you know, Disneyland hotel. Jack rather was, a, what a interesting, uh, uh, a person. He was he was a good friend of uh, of of Walt's, which is why um, he got the uh, opportunity to build the Disneyland Hotel. But but he was a pioneer in TV, and he owned the franchises of uh, Lone Ranger, uh, Lassie, uh, Sergeant Preston of the Yukon, and in fact, one of the things that uh, I don't cover in my book is uh, Clayton Moore, who is uh, TV's Lone Ranger. Mm -hmm. would visit Disneyland for publicity purposes. I've seen photos of him on the Mark Twain with kids and things like that. That was all through uh, Jack Rather. 
Sergeant Preston of the Yukon, which probably nobody remembers today, but he was very, very popular. He was in comic books, he, you know, a popular TV shows, the whole bit, um, was uh, the judge of a dog show at Disneyland. Disneyland had a dog show. They had pancake runs where, where women would uh, uh, flip pancakes as they were running in this marathon down Main Street. Um, it, was a, it was a much different experience uh, in those days. Here, here's a story that's not in the book, and people are going, well, these are all great stories. How come they're not in the book? Because there's great stories in the book, and there's only so much room in the book. <laughs> uh, Walt was sitting on Main Street, and uh, uh, the Disney executive who, who, who told me this story said, no, I, I, I don't want you to mention my name, but I swear that this was true. They're sitting on Main Street because Walt loves sitting on, on benches. He loves sitting on Main Street. He also loves sitting over uh, near the Mark Twain. And so they're sitting there, and this nun comes in, and she's holding a rope. And the rope goes back, and it goes around a kid's waist, and then the rope goes, and it goes around another kid's waist, and then it goes back, and there's over a dozen kids. And then at the end of the rope, there's another nun holding the rope. Now, Walt's very curious about this. Walt, Walt was a very, very curious guy. His, his son-in-law, Ron Miller, said, you know, I remember a time even when Walt was in his 60s, we were standing by this new uh, truck, and Walt was so curious, he's in his 60s, he crawls underneath the truck just to see how this thing is working <laughs> because he's just that interested about it. So anyway, Walt goes over to the nun and goes, uh, uh, hi, I'm 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 uh, Walt Disney, and and I'm curious about this. And she said, "Oh, well, we're from an orphanage, and we saved up money uh, to come uh, uh, to Disneyland. We had enough for an admission ticket for me and and the other sister, and and then we were able to to get some uh, uh, tickets uh, for the kids. You know, we're looking forward to this day." Walt said, "Wait there one minute," and Walt runs to the front of the park, comes back gives them back all of their money, additional tickets, and he says, I've made arrangements at the Red Wagon Inn for lunch for you. It's on me. You should have their hamburgers. I love their hamburgers there. <laughs> and then he goes back and he sits on the bench and he goes, that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. And and so, you know, Walt loved the park, loved the people who came into the park. One of the things that's in the book is where Hank Dane said on uh, opening day, which is July 18th, on <laughs> opening day, he said Walt was by the firehouse, and when the first guests came in, he was blowing them kisses. <laughs> oh, how funny. Because he was just so happy that they had paid money to come in and uh, experience all of this. <laughs> now, now, Michael, you you've read the book, and and you've done uh, you've even done a, a, a show on on uh, the opening uh, of Disneyland. Did did you find that there was some new information in the book that would be valuable? 
Oh yes, absolutely. Uh, there's all kinds of stories. The one, the one though that I found the funniest were the first children that Walt officially greeted and welcomed <laughs> into the park. I, I guess being a parent, now a grandparent and a teacher, uh, Michael mm -hmm. Schwartner and Christine Vess, that right. they almost didn't make it into the park, and I, I just thought th that story just delighted me. If would you mind telling that? Oh no, not not, not <laughs> at all. I. I as you can see, I'm not shy at all in terms of, <laughs> of, of telling stories. And, and as a historian, that's what you do is, <laughs> is uh, you know, you gather together the information and you put it together as, as a story. Well, well, Michael's uh, family on July 17th had, uh, had driven down from Bakersfield and they were going to take a um, uh, vacation trip uh, down to uh, uh, Mexico. You know, most people you know, would, would come down that way and then pass San Diego and then go to Tijuana and all of that. There was a, a tourist thing. And they stopped uh, in North Hollywood to, to visit, uh, you know, Michael's cousins. And he was able to get uh, Christine and another cousin all stirred up because they had seen, you know, the show on the 17th on TV. You know, let's get our parents to take us to Disneyland tomorrow because it's the opening of Disneyland. And um, so uh, they went to Disneyland, but again, you know, not to be the first in line, just, just to go to Disneyland. And so when they got there, there's this huge, huge, uh, you know, line. And so uh, Michael's father and his aunt, you know, went to um, uh, the ticket kiosk uh, to purchase tickets. And it was hot. It was hot all that summer. And so Michael's mother uh, it, it took the kids um, over to an awning that were by the uh, turnstiles so that there'd be a little shade because even though it was, you know, about 10, 11 o'clock in the uh, 10, uh, actually it was nine, uh, nine-ish in the, in the morning there, it, it was already very, very hot. And of course, kids being kids and, and you being a father, you know this, uh, especially when they're young, they get bored very quickly. And, and they've got so much energy, you know, uh, it, it, in, inside them. Now I just look for places to sit down. But as a kid, it's like there's so much to see and you've got to run around. And so Michael's doing backflips and, and uh, Christine is running around. And as she's running around, she trips and scrapes her knee. And so she's crying. And so uh, one of the female Disneyland hostesses come out and, and, and see what the, what the problem is. And, and they put uh, Band-Aids on. And in fact, if you look at that famous photo, I didn't realize this until I was researching the book. I'd seen that photo all the time of Walt kneeling down and he's next to Michael and Christine. If you look at Christine right below her right knee, there's two Band-Aids. It's because that's where she mm -hmm. got scraped. And so as this female hostess is talking to them, she goes, would you like to meet Walt Disney? And they took the kids away. And so the mother is there and going, should I go along? Should I be worried about this? Again, this is 1955, so it's a, a different era. You know, you, uh, you don't know what's going on. And they took him to Walt Disney. Walt Disney found both of them, you know, just charming and and uh, personable and, and representing that ideal of, you know, uh, exuberant, average, normal American kids. 
and uh, so had them as the first two children uh, to come in. And, and when the father uh, and the aunt uh, came back, they refunded them their money because they brought in the entire family for free. Uh, Michael told me that um, uh, uh, Walt asked him if he could wiggle his ears. Walt always had a fascination for that because Walt couldn't wiggle his own ears. Uh, Ken Anderson, who was an animator and Imagineer, uh, said, I could wiggle my ears. And so Walt always kept coming to me and say, wiggled your ears, wiggled your ears. And he says that's why he had Dopey wiggle his ears because he was just fascinated <laughs> by that. And, and Michael says, I can't wiggle my ears, can you? And um, Walt said, no, I can't wiggle my ears, but I can wiggle my nose. And Michael said, yep, yeah. he wiggled his nose, mustache and all, you know, for that. And then the very first thing, once they, uh, you know, did the publicity photos, is Walt took him on the train and pointed out, you know, all of the areas uh, of, of Disneyland. And then, of course, gave them uh, both lifetime passes so they and their, their family could, you know, come in and visit Disneyland whenever they wanted. And they did. They they did uh, you know uh, over the years and and people forget the train, the purpose of the train was not transportation because right. you only had the train station at at Main Street and then uh, just a little later uh, you had a, a train station at at Frontierland but the train didn't stop at Frontierland there was a different train that took off from Frontierland that was the cattle car train so you had a parallel track of two trains. But anyway, the purpose of the train was not transportation, but it was to give people an overview of what the park was, because nobody had ever done a Disneyland before. So how do you explain that to them? Well, most people are visual. Once you're on the train, you go, oh, look at that. That looks interesting. I might want to go to there. I want, you know, and, and, and all of that. So, so that's why the train trip was called the Grand Tour of Disneyland mm -hmm. because you were taking a tour around there. And again, that was the passenger car. And Walt had a cattle car that took off from Frontierland and would make the circle, but would end up again back in Frontierland. But Walt thought, this is going to be great. But he found that people didn't want to be treated like cattle, you know, because the, the cars had these slats, you know, and you were looking, you were standing up and looking through these slats, you know, and so, uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize that, uh, that Walt had some flubs, you know, um, but, uh, whether it was, it was that or the Mickey Mouse Club Circus or whatever, but he also corrected those flubs, you know, as, as, as quickly as, as possible. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, and, uh, then, you know, within that year, uh, you have uh, your millionth visitor. And, uh, you know, it's like, wow. You know, and, and again, this, this was a little girl who was then taken away from her family. Yeah. Well, uh, the, I, I the, the mother said, this guy came and he was dressed as a frontier sheriff and he took my girl and he just disappeared. And I <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, and in your book, you said how that when they were roughhousing, the security guards threatened to throw them out of the park. Oh yes, and then, yes, and yes. Because thought, you so they never made you, it through the gate almost. <laughs> yeah, you do not do that at yeah. Disneyland. You know, one of the things 
for people who want to get a good sense, uh, go track down a film called Disneyland USA, which is part of the People in Places series, and you will see that men went to the park wearing a, um, a, a you know a, a, a dress coat and a tie and hats. And and women were in high heels, and they had gloves and and pearl necklaces, and and even the kids were dressed up because this was not a carnival experience. This was like going to the opera, or going to the theater, or or whatever. You dressed up. This was this was almost like a once in a lifetime, uh, you know, experience. And you were expected to behave better. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you take a look at, at, at that uh, film, Disneyland USA, and, and take a look at some of the other uh, still photos and, and all that are out there. And you don't see people in, in shorts and T-shirts. That, that would be inappropriate. That's too informal. You know, yes, you go to Disneyland to have fun, but, you know, there's a respectfulness that, right. that you better have for this. Yeah, yeah. Long-time listeners to the show know how I feel about um, today's dress. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, well, okay, let's, let's, let's go to 1955. You've told us a, a couple of differences. What else, if we visited the park in 1955, how different would our experience be compared to our experience of today? Well, uh, first off, of course, uh, Bill Evans and his, his brother Jack and uh, Ruth Shellhorn were rushing to put in the landscaping, and they didn't have enough money to finish the landscaping. So, so you would see um, uh, a lot of baby plants. You would see a, a, an awful lot of uh, uh, just uh, areas that were unadorned. Not everything was paved. Uh, when Disneyland opened, Walt uh, said, we're not going to pave everything. People will tell us where they want to walk. You know, it, it, it's like if you were walking down to the end of a, a, a block, most people don't walk down to the end of the block and make a military turn and, and then go. They'll cut across a lawn, right, because the, mm-hmm. the shortest uh, distance is a straight line. And so Walt said, let's, you know, check out where, you know, uh, People are, are, are going to walk. And, and again, it was that last-minute rush. So you'd go up to the castle, and right before you go over the drawbridge, if you look over to the left, there's a fire hydrant. You know? That's not the theme for a medieval <laughs> castle, but, yes, it's there for safety. And so, you know, it took a while to, to develop, uh, you know, some of these things. And, of course, there weren't an awful lot of attractions, so that by January 1956, you know, just uh, about six months since after Disneyland opened, Walt invested a million and a half or more dollars to uh, introduce well over a dozen more attractions, you know, uh, for, for things in the park for, for people to, to enjoy. Um, you know, so... Things would have been spread out. It would have been a lot less crowded, uh, and and you would have um, uh, things that that disappeared within the first uh, six months, like the uh, intimate apparel shop on oh. on uh, on Main Street. In, in fact, today, as you walk down Main Street, suddenly you're confronted with this building that has 
every other building you can just go in at, at ground level into the building. In, in this shop, suddenly you have to go up, you know, two or three steps, and then there's a porch, and then there's the entrance. Well, that was the um, Hollywood Maxwell Intimate Apparel Shop. Hollywood Maxwell was famous uh, for making what were called who can tells, which were falsies uh, for movie actresses so that they would have a different silhouette. And so um, uh, the place was known as the Wizard of Bras. Not the Wizard of Oz, but the Wizard mm -hmm. of Bras. Didn't have like the history of undergarments or something on display in there? They had a little mechanical character who was the Wizard of Bras, and they had these little displays because, again, in early Disneyland, one of the things that you would see as you walked down the street, if you went into the Upjohn Pharmacy or, or whatever, or even the Swift Market House, you would have exhibits because Walt wanted this an educational experience too. So, again, you're going up the steps and you've got the porch. So, again, kids can't just look in. And for uh, men who might be embarrassed being next to their wives or girlfriends looking at this stuff, they had the porch, you know, to, to sit on or, or, you know, hang out on while, while that was, was happening. But, again, that was there simply because uh, the owner of that was a friend of uh, C.V. Wood. C.V. Wood was the president and general manager of uh, Disneyland and was the one who brought in what were called lessees, what we call operating participants today. Uh, you know, things like Swift and TWA and, and all of that, which was a tough job because there had never been a Disneyland. So imagine going to a business and say, we want you to come in and give us money so that your name can be here. Why would we want to do that? You know, because amusement parks had, especially after World War II, had fallen into uh, disrepair, and there were uh, there were pickpockets and prostitutes and vagrants, and things were not safe and all of that. So C.V. Wood convinced people this is going to be a different experience, and this is going to be a billboard, you know, for you you're people are going to have a wonderful happy time and when they have a wonderful happy time they're going to see your name and associate that with that wonderful happy time um so uh uh the guy who ran uh, hollywood maxwell uh was a good friend of cv woods so cv woods gave him you know uh that space on there but nobody comes uh to disneyland to buy bras um, Imagine that. <laughs> maybe it's different today, right? Uh, if, if, if you had a, an Elsa and Anna uh, uh, shop that sold Anna and Elsa bras, mm -hmm. you know, maybe the line would be out the door and down the block, right? Or, you know, you but, get but, wet on Splash Mountain, you have to buy a dry <laughs> bra. <you know? laughs> and uh, uh, so, again, that, that, that didn't last until uh, that was closed by January 56. So, but but again, you could you could have seen uh, you know a a, a shop uh, like that. Uh, one of the things that replaced it was um, uh, Jimmy Starr's Hollywood Memorabilia, where you, and and then that didn't last very long either. But uh, uh, so the, again, different experience. When you're leaving the park, you'd be uh, serenaded by a Wurlitzer concert 
from the Wurlitzer shop that that was uh, uh, down there in in uh, uh, town square. There were no fireworks. You know, Tommy Walker, who was in charge of entertainment, he's the one who came up with fireworks because people were leaving Disneyland uh, by five o'clock or so to try and beat the traffic home. <laughs> you know, it Even never then. occurred to them. Yes, there's a there's a whole new different magic that happens after the lights go down. Um, you know, so, uh, in some ways it, it would be a more gentle, pleasant experience in 1955 than what it is now. You, uh, you wouldn't feel, uh, as pressed, even though there were lines, people were well behaved and, uh, the lines usually moved very smoothly. You're not, you're not looking at a, an hour wait, let alone a four or five hour wait, uh, uh, for something. And again, these are things you had never seen before because Walt had designed Disneyland as if it was a movie set and you are the, and the movie set is not complete until you as the actor come on to the movie set. It's been designed for you to come on and act out, you know, that role. Uh, for that to happen. Walt, Walt's famous uh, quote, you know, you can design, build, you know, the most wonderful place in the world, but it takes people to make it a reality. Mm-hmm. Walt was saying that in reference to the guests. This is a set, but it's just a static set until you have people in here and they're interacting and you are playing a role. You are playing the role of good guest. That's why people act differently in Disneyland than they do in real life. That's very interesting. Because even subconsciously, they realize there's a role and you're expected. We don't do that anymore. Disney doesn't do that anymore. But in the early days, especially when Walt was there, that was it. That's why you waited in line. Because that was your expectation. Imagine... Uh, putting a strip of masking tape down the street and say, don't step over that because that's the parade route. And at Disneyland, everybody backs up and goes, okay, try doing that in New York and see what happens, right? (laughs) There's some masking tape. Don't step over that line. I'm (laughs) going to step step over over that line. I'm going to jump back. I'm going to step over it again. They'll step over it. But Walt had it designed. So you're creating that sense of, oh, my gosh. And you have the hub because when Disneyland opened in 55, Walt was a grandfather. So he wanted a centralized location where he and his wife Lillian could sit and the grandkids could go off and play, but they could come back because there was always that reference of where they could come back and, you know, then go. And, um, Gosh, I I asked Imagineer John Hench about this. I said, how did you go about building, you know, Disney theme parks when there was no more Walt? And he said, we do it by experience. Walt did it by instinct. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and and, and again, uh, you know, you'd see all sorts of things that, you know, aren't there now. Uh, On Main Street, you'd have um, an organ grinder. Sam Aziza and and his, uh, his 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 little monkey Josephine who wore this little red cap and then she'd take off the red cap and you could put a couple of coins in it and uh, Sam got smart real quick 
sometimes he'd dress her up in a little coonskin cap, <laughs> just like Davy Crockett. Right. So you, it, it is, speaking of which, in 55, you went into Frontierland on the left-hand side. Uh, there wasn't uh, the shooting gallery. There was the Davy Crockett Museum. Mm-hmm. And you would have these life-size figures of um, Buddy Ebsen and uh, Fess Parker, who were both over uh, uh, six feet tall. One was six two, one was like six five. And uh, wax figures, and the wax figures were created by the woman who had created the wax figures for the movie House of Wax, which was re- released in 1953. And so you, so you could borrow a, a, a replica of old Betsy, the, the rifle, and put on a coonskin cap and go and get your picture taken with Davy Crockett and, and Georgie Russell there, you know? I remember so, this uh, they moved them over to Tom Sawyer Island, right. I think, at one point, yeah. And there used to and, be a little And then pony not only farm. did they move them over there, but they uh, sort of, um, what do I want to say, put them inside the stockade so you could only look in through the window right or the doorway you couldn't go and and get your picture taken and and out by the pack mules they had um Willard P Bounds uh, uh blacksmith and sheriff and that was uh, an homage to um uh Walt's father-in-law who uh, uh worked for the federal government on an Indian reservation uh, Walt's wife was actually born on an Indian reservation and lived there uh, for much of her early life, but he was the blacksmith and the sheriff for the Nez Perce uh, uh, reservation, so he had that building there. And then that building, you know, got transformed into Casa de Fritos. <laughs> so uh, things were constantly changing, and, and that that's something that, that we need to... Um, uh, take advantage of now is, and I'm as guilty as anybody else. You go into the the Disney park and you just assume this stuff is going to be there forever. It's not. And, and Disney has gotten to the point now too, of not telling you when it's going, because right. then what happens is people get all upset, you know, and like with Mr. Toad out at Walt Disney world, you know, mm-hmm. and you had a toad sit in and all of that. And, and that convinced Disney we are not going to tell people when this closes. We're not even going to tell cast members because cast members tell other people. <laughs> and so sometimes, sometimes cast members only get information by going to, you know, unofficial websites or listening to Diz Unplugged. That's right. They're not getting it from the, from the sources up above there. Now, another, another quality of Disneyland that I think separates it from the other Magic Kingdoms is the loyalty guests and cast members have to the park and to mm-hmm. Walt's legacy. And we've all yes. heard of Club 33, but not everyone has heard of Club 55. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the ultimate club for loyalty. Uh, um, can you tell our listeners about this club yeah, and, and its and there, members? And there's less than a half dozen left. Yeah. You know, uh, basically what happened is is they would have uh, reunion parties of those people who worked at Disneyland in 1955. And so Van France, who created um, uh, Disney University and that whole training program and all that, uh, came up with a concept of we really should have, with people leaving the park and things like that, we really should have an alumni group um, 
you know, and, and have, uh, you know, annual reunions, you know, to share these memories and stay in touch and, and, and all of that. And so I uh, created Club 55. Now, to be a member of Club 55, you had to have a check. You had to have worked at, in, at Disneyland in 1955, but you had to have had a, been paid and have a check, you know, from Disney Incorporated. Because mm-hmm. besides Disney Incorporated, they had lessees. And so people who worked in the Ruggles China Shop or whatever were paid by Ruggles China Shop. And uh, uh, people who worked in the Upjohn Pharmacy were paid by Upjohn uh, Pharmacy. So they couldn't be members of uh, Club 55 if they worked for, you know, a lessee. You had to, and even if you worked on the trains, because the trains were not owned by um, uh, Disneyland Incorporated. The trains were owned by Walt. The uh, Frontierland Shooting Gallery was owned by Walt. The Art Corner in Tomorrowland was owned by Walt. It was owned by Retlaw, which is mm-hmm. Walter spelled backwards there. But so if you had, uh, um, so the, a good friend of mine who, who wrote the uh, uh, forward, Bill Sully Sullivan, who, who started oh, yeah. as a, uh-huh. a jungle cruise skipper, he's a member of Club 55, but he met his wife, there, but his wife worked over in the Adventureland Bazaar for uh, Walter Clark's Hawaiian shop. So since she's a lessee, she couldn't be a member of Club 55. They're they're both absolutely delightful, although uh, Sully irritates me because I helped him put together um, his his memoir. He never wanted to write. He said, I might be able to write part of a chapter or something like that. So I sat <laughs> down with him and I talked and I recorded all of this stuff and I transcribed it and, uh, you know, brought in uh, other facts and all that. And so there's a book out uh, of, of Sully's entire life because he, he started the Jungle Cruise, then became an executive at Walt Disney, vice president of Magic Kingdom. Yeah. Uh, one of the fr- first directors there of, of uh, uh, Epcot. Fascinating life. Didn't he what irritates me about Sully, and I've told him this, is I spent months doing that and pulling these things out of Sully and showing pictures and all of this. Uh, that's all I got, Jim. That's all I got. And then as soon as the book came out and podcasters started interviewing him, he started remembering all of these stories he never told me. <laughs> oh, how funny. Well, see, book two, chapter two there. That's what, that, that's, that's what I told him. But um, So Club 55 was an organization, and people would get together annually, and these were the, the people like Bob Gurr, you know, um, uh, Bob Penfield, uh, things like this, who who had worked and wanted to keep Walt's philosophy alive. Uh, uh, Sully told me, he said, Jim, one of the things you're not going to be able to capture in the in the book there is how we all loved Walt and we wanted to please him, you know, and and he said. You know, today there's all these books and all this. He said, we learned Disney culture by watching Walt. So all of those things that that everybody says is tradition now was we learned it from seeing how Walt behaved, how Walt behaved with the cast members, how Walt behaved with um, uh, the guests, 
and uh, and all of that. And unfortunately, remember, it's 61 years ago. Yes. You know, so so if you were 20 years old in 1955, you're 81 years old now. And yeah. and and these were people who grew up in the generation where you smoked packs of cigarettes every day and you drank heavily, you know, and you ate lots of red meat, you know, <laughs> and make sure it's raw, you know. <laughs> okay, I, this I wanna, sounds like I, my lifestyle. What's the problem, too? <laughs> So you know, not a lot, not a lot of these people are around anymore. And and again, that's one of the reasons that I write the books that I write, and one of the reasons I wrote Disneyland, nineteen fifty five, the unofficial uh, uh, companion there, is because this stuff is being forgotten. These people are, you know, over thirty five years, uh, I've been interviewing people in Club fifty five and. They keep passing away. Just this last year, Jack Lindquist, yes. you know, fortunately he wrote a book, but he was in the process of writing a second book. And, and I, and having known Jack and, and talked with him, I know that he had tons of stories and none of this is, is, is getting recorded. And this is sort of our last chance to do this. When I was talking with Bob Gurr, he says, you don't realize what it was like driving to, uh, uh, Disneyland in, in, in 1955. And I, I said, well, it, it was, you know, probably a long drive, even with the freeway. He said, the freeway hadn't been completely completed. So you had to get off and you had to go on dirt roads and it was hot and cars didn't have air conditioning. It was just coming in as an option. You know, American motors was introduced. They called it, uh, all season something, you know, so, so you could stay cool in the summer and warm in the in, in the winter. He said, so I'd go down there and I'd have to roll down the window on my car and it was hot. And he says, people forget the smog, you know. So mm-hmm. you're driving through the smog, through the heat, on dirt roads that are just one lane to get to Disneyland. <laughs> he says, we didn't think it was going to last a year. You know, but but fortunately, by the end of '55, you know, the the freeway had had been completed, but there was no signage. You know, so mm-hmm. you just had to sort of guess. There was one sign before the exit uh, of Harbor Boulevard. That was it. There was no marquee sign out in front of Disneyland because they didn't have money to to build it for the first couple of years. Um, so it's important to get this information down and. There's a lot of excellent books out there uh, about Disneyland and, and early Disneyland, but there was so much that you can't pack it all in, you know? Right. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, all of this stuff, pe- people are going to forget that, you know, managers at Disneyland had to wear gray suits and orange ties. And I thought, that's really odd. And the reason for that is because Walt wanted managers to be instantly identifiable to the guests and to the cast members. So if there was a problem, you immediately went to the manager to resolve that. They couldn't hide backstage. Uh, Marty Scalar told me, uh, uh, we went to Walt and we said, you know, can we get air conditioning in, in the in the offices here? You know, it gets really hot. And Walt says, absolutely not. He says, First off, that's something that the guests don't see. 
And if we're going to invest more money, we invest money for things that the guests are going to enjoy. Second, if I give you guys air conditioning, you're going to hide out over there, and I want you out in the park <laughs> taking care of things and interacting with, with the guests. You know, the the reason we got the term attractions is because one day Walt was, was sitting out on a uh, on a bench by the Mark Twain, and uh, an older woman looked at him and, and said, uh, oh, we don't ride any of the rides. You know, my husband loves the train, and he, he, he loves the Mark Twain here, but we don't go on any of the rides. Because rides was a carnival term. It was mm-hmm. an amusement park term. So it became attractions because that is a film term. Oh, coming attractions. Coming attractions. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and in fact, that's why at the end of 55, Walt is putting posters in the front of the train station there and, and, and through the uh, uh, breezeway into Main Street those are coming attraction posters. Mm-hmm. These are the movies that you're going to be able to pick to see. You know? Now, now, now in all your research uh, of, of all your books, and especially the unofficial Disneyland 1955 companion, if you could go Which back... Which is available and- on Amazon.com and also <laughs> go to ThemeParkPress.com and, and you can see that. Go ahead. Okay, always put you. in the plug there. Always, always. <laughs> and and if if you could go back in time, what year in Disneyland's existence would you choose and why? I would say probably 1961-62. And people are always surprised at that. They said, wouldn't you like to go back? You wrote about 1955 and, and it seems so interesting. Wouldn't you want to go back? And I said, in 1955... You know, all the ingredients were there, but it wasn't soup yet. You know, the mm-hmm. landscaping wasn't there. Some of the things that we associate with Disneyland aren't there yet. Uh, if I go in, in 61 or, 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 or 62, what has happened is you've got the introduction of the monorail and the 20,000 leagues under the sea, uh, the submarine voyage and the, the, the Matterhorn and and in 61, 62 is when they've introduced uh, the Columbia, you know, and they've expanded, right. uh, uh, they've expanded uh, the, the Rainbow Ridge area. So now it's nature's wonderland, you know, and uh, you've got all of these things there. And so it's still got that innocence and um, uh, wonder of, of Disneyland in 55 but you've got so much more to see and, and enjoy, and it's been operating for five years, so they know what to do. You know, they they know how to how to to get the get this stuff uh, uh, done. You know, you're you're even getting into the era now of uh, name tags, because before then they had these brass. Um, badges that just had a number, Mm -hmm. you know, based on your seniority. And, and this breaks my heart too, is Disney never kept a list, never kept a list of which number was to which person. Oh, you think Van France or somebody would have kept one? (laughs) Well, again, you're so busy doing things, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, and so, you know, Woody, and, and so I'll, but and again, in the midst of it, it's like 
well, this isn't important. We all know who, you know, number 36 is. And we know who number one is. That's oh, Walt Disney. Yes. In fact, on, on the 10th Centennial show there with uh, Julie Ream, you know, he flashed. And, and how playful is Walt? You know, he flashes his lapel and he says, and I'm number one. Uh, <laughs> well, I remember Marty Scalar said that he wrote the, the whole script that he wrote for that show. Walt, Walt looked at it and then put it aside and then Walt just ad-libbed through the whole thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, I I for that man. <laughs> see, I've I've talked to Marty. I talked to to Jack Spears, who wrote a lot of his introductions for the TV show. I talked to Jack Hanna, who would direct him, and he, he said, "Yeah, Walt Walt uh, knew his lines." <laughs> he said he knew the lines, and he said, and we also had uh, cards up because because again, they they would sometimes tape, you know, five or six introductions in a day, and he said. But when Walt came on the set, he knew what he wanted to do. He said, mm-hmm. I, I directed a lot of the, the things with Walt and Donald Duck. And he said, Walt really saw, there was nothing there. He said, but Walt really saw Donald Duck. And he started ad-libbing with Donald Duck. So he had to go back to the storyboards. <laughs> because you're not going to tell Walt, you know. <laughs> and, and, and again, Walt would, would mess up things. You know, in, in on the uh, TV show Man in Flight, he... Uh, he, he identifies Sleeping Beauty's castle as Snow White's castle right. mm-hmm. on um, uh, Donald's uh, Silver Anniversary uh, show. He says, uh, yes, uh, Donald's first appearance was in Orphan's Benefit in 1935. No, it was Wise Little Hen in 1934. You know, uh, but who's going to correct Walt Disney, right? Well, the, I know they said that they figured well, Walt was always changing the name of the castle, so they just figured he changed it again. So yes. just, yeah, they... no, that, that was exactly it. At, <laughs> at, at one point, it was going to be the fairy castle. Mm-hmm. At one point, it was going to be the fairy land castle. At one point, it was going to be the Robin Hood castle mm-hmm. to um, uh, promote uh, the live-action Robin Hood film that Walt made. And mm-hmm. in fact, in the early days of Disneyland, and again, if you go back and take a look at uh, uh, the Disneyland USA film, which was made in 1956, you see Robin Hood's men sitting out there in the front of the castle, and you see uh, Will Scarlet uh, all done up, completely in red. There, you know, for, yeah. for the and 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 for Walt, you know, oh my gosh, what a risk to call it Sleeping Beauty's Castle because the castle opens in '55, but Sleeping Beauty is not released until '59 because again, it kept getting delayed because everybody's working on Disneyland. Mm-hmm. But this shows what a good showman he is. He's promoting oh, that he, film he, he, four he, years He was in an advance. excellent showman. <laughs> he was, uh, uh, again, John Hench told me the first week that Disneyland was open, uh, uh, he was up there in, in uh, Walt's apartment, which is right above the uh, firehouse, mm-hmm. and Walt came in uh, late afternoon, and he said th- there was just a grin from ear to ear, and he says, there's a lot of happy people out there. There's a lot of happy people out there. You know, he he loved the park, but he loved it because of the joy that it gave to other people. And and in Disneyland 1956, one of the things you see too, and I couldn't include this in the book, uh, was uh, they show the Autopia, and you see uh, in two separate Autopia cars, two young uh, black girls just enjoying themselves. 
because Disneyland, unlike other places in Los Angeles, other, unlike other places in California, unlike other places in the United States, everybody was welcome. Yes. And, 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 and so, uh, you know, even in the, uh, I, I was able, um, uh, I, I knew Van France. I, I, I have a, uh, a Xerox copy of the 1955, uh, 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 training book for hosts and hostesses. And he said, one of the things Walt put in there is that the moment anyone drives in to the parking lot of Disney land, drives into the parking lot, they are the king of the Magic Kingdom. It doesn't make any difference whether they're black, white, brown, yellow, uh, Christian, Jewish, uh, Buddhist, Hindu, uh, rich, poor, healthy, unhealthy, uh, Democrat or Republican. They're all the king. They are the king of the Magic Kingdom and need to be treated accordingly. Well, and, that's and that certainly was Walt's helps. philosophy. Yep. Well, that helps put to rest the claims that people say he was a racist and a misogynist oh. and all of that because everybody no. who works closely with him from Floyd Norman on, you know, all say that was none of that is true. So no, not, was, none of the, and, and he gave people positions of authority. He gave women positions of authority even mm -hmm. in the 30s, even in the 30s. Uh, you know, which they never would have gotten at any other studio. Um, uh, Marty Scalar is Jewish. The Sherman brothers are Jewish. Kay mm -hmm. Kamen, who ran all the merchandising, he, he, he was Jewish. Uh, uh, Floyd uh, uh, told me, uh, yeah, he hired me. He said if any other black animators showed up, uh, he would have hired them too. And, in fact, he did. There was uh, one Frank, and I can't remember his last name, and he was only there for, for about a year or so. Um, no, no restrictions. And, uh, in fact, Walt, when he was at Disneyland, uh, would sometimes have breakfast over at the, uh, Aunt Jemima Pancake House mm -hmm. and would sit there with, uh, Aileen Lewis, who is the, oh. uh, uh, <laughs> actress who played Aunt Jemima. And, uh, as Sully told me, yeah, she just loved sitting there because Walt would listen to her and ask her questions and, and all of that. And he, he said, you know, Walt treated everybody exactly the same. He said mm -hmm. it didn't make any difference who they were or what their status was. You know, he he talked to a gardener. He talked to, you know, a, a, a janitor. In fact, he, he in fact he said the janitors are the most important people at Disneyland because that's the person that people will most likely come to to ask questions. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know. And, and again, he stuck guest relations at the very front of the park. If, if you take a look at stores, especially stores in the 1950s, if you had a complaint department, it was on the second floor, the third floor, and, and in the back and around the corner and whatever, yes. you know, because we didn't want people to come up there and complain. Walt stuck it right there smack in the front of the park because he said when people are going to need help are when they first come in and when they leave. So we want it there, and we want it visible for them. Oh, my gosh, you know? <laughs> a great man. Uh, great I, man. I, I make Walt sound so wonderful, and, and he is, but he was, you know, he was a human being, and as I said, you know, he, he did some stumbles. He made, um, you know, uh, uh, mistakes, but, boy, he had so many more hits than misses, mm -hmm. you know, when he went up to bat.
Oh, absolutely. Now, now one of the things I, I, I know you're a Disney fan. Um, Disney fans are collectors. So I have mm-hmm. to know a Disney historian like yourself, where where you you know the history, you know all the collectibles for the last sixty one, mm-hmm. well probably mm-hmm. over a hundred years yeah. what's been made. What do you collect? Um, I collect friends. I collect mm-hmm. memories. Uh, when it when it comes to Disneyland and when it comes to Disneyland in the early years and and actually a, a lot of what I collect, um, my house looks like a a library exploded and and I'm I'm just living in the remains of it here, uh, you know, with papers, magazines scattered all over the floor and and uh, you know books and uh things like this and obscure books you know i i have i have over two dozen biographies of walt disney some of them are in foreign languages and i I got those translated and and things like that but in terms of disneyland early disneyland i have two oh and and this is this is a a a sad thing probably you don't know this and probably most of your listeners don't know this because it happened this week uh tom tumbrush uh passed away this week and and of course uh, uh, he, he was the owner of Tomart mm-hmm. and he was the one who came out with those first uh, four volumes of Disney souvenirs mm-hmm. you know and uh, nobody had again Disney hadn't kept <laughs> any record of any of this stuff you know yeah yeah, yeah. They, they, I think they kept a record of money coming in for it, but they didn't, <laughs> they didn't uh you know well, who did this you know the the very first piece of uh, Disney merchandise was when Walt was in New York, and uh this was in nineteen twenty nine and they were recording a a new Mickey Mouse uh, cartoon, and he was in a hotel and he saw this very uh, uh sketchy kind of guy in a over coat and and his hat was you know uh uh dipped down so it was shading his eyes and all that and he, he you know walt felt he was being looked at and and the guy just started moving towards him and and uh walt again you know it, it you know this is a, a young kid in his, in his 20s and his you know in new york for one of the first times and the guy reaches into his overcoat and pulls out $300 cash. And he says, I want to use Mickey Mouse, you know, on a, um, a, a school uh, uh, notepad. And Walt always needed money. So he, he took the cash, shoved it in his pocket, said, sure. It was so inconsequential to him. He never wrote it down in his diary. He never wrote it in, le- in a letter he sent mm-hmm. to Lillian uh, or a letter to, to Roy, and, and that was it. So, so for years, nobody knew who was this company who did the very first licensed Mickey Mouse. You know, now, now thanks to people like Dave Smith, we've we've been able to to track that down. But for me, in the early days of Disneyland, there are two souvenirs that just have real sentimental value. Um, uh, in, in 1959, as, as a kid, I, I was there at uh, uh, Disneyland with, with my two brothers, and one of the things we got as we left the park, because again, 
You couldn't buy souvenirs while you were in the park because then you had to carry them around or you had to shove them in mom's purse for her to carry around. So we were told, keep an eye if there's something that you want and if it's within the budget, you know, but you can only get it as we're leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the inexpensive souvenirs was the Tinkerbell magic wand. So it, it, it was this wand, and then at the top, there was a, a star. Now, again, it was very inexpensive, and so all three of us got it, because how it worked was you took it, and you held it up next to a light bulb for it seemed like an eternity, and then you turned out the light, and the wand would glow dimly. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it was like, oh, my God, oh, look at this. And, and, but then it would go out, and so you had to hold it up <laughs> the light bulb again uh, uh, to do that. And, and so I under, fully understand people's fascination with glow sticks and, 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 and all of these things because that was one of the most popular souvenirs at, at Disneyland. Mm-hmm. But a souvenir I got when I was, was 12 at Disneyland, it was only available at Disneyland and we can thank uh, Jack Olson for that. Jack Olson uh, really needs a book uh, about him. He was the guy in charge of merchandise at, at Disneyland, and he was the one who said Disneyland merchandise should be unique and distinctive so that you know this came from Disneyland. Oh, not Disney you know? Parks. Not Disney Parks, not, <laughs> not, not Disney in general, but Disneyland. And there had to be not only uh, and and Walt supported this 100 percent. There had to be a um, several levels of merchandise from the least expensive, you know, to something more pricey, so that everybody could get something. Jack was the one who who went into the dumpsters at Disney Studio and pulled out cells that were being thrown away, and he would cut them down to what is called image size. Because, again, if you're doing a, a – cells can be pretty big. And if you're doing a character in the distance, the character is pretty small. So you, you trim that and you put it on a background. And you could buy that at Disneyland for $1.47. Yes, An I've authentic cell from Lady and the <laughs> Tramp, Sleeping Beauty, Donald Duck, Chip and Dale. And I, I actually still have a, um, uh, a cell of uh, Jiminy Cricket full-figure style of uh, Jiminy uh, Cricket, although some of the paint is starting to chip off because, again, the paint only had to stay on the cell mm-hmm. long enough to be filmed underneath the camera. Uh, but the the present that I got that transformed my life was um, my birthday's in August, and, of course, there's uh, 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 Christmas a couple of months after that. But uh, there was something that I wanted, and... Uh, Oh my gosh! It was hugely expensive. It, it, it was something like eight or nine dollars, and so mom and dad said we can get that for you, but it is both your birthday present and the Christmas present, so you have to make a decision. And I said yes, I want that. And that day we were there at, at at Disneyland. I was constantly running back to the art corner to to see if it was still there because I thought they'll sell out of all of these. This is so amazing. It was an animation kit, and in the animation kit, there were pieces that uh, of press board that you could put together into an animation um, 
uh, a table with, with a sheet of glass, real glass, and you had How to Draw Mickey Mouse book, a How to Draw Donald Duck book. You had the art of, uh, an Art of Animation book. You had a timing sheet. You had uh, a pre-punched animation um, paper. You had pencils that said Disneyland on it. Um, and, and, and that was it. And I, I remember getting that and uh, uh, sitting in the backseat of the car with it on my lap. And I was not allowed to open it until Christmas. So oh my, my brothers, Chris and Mike, had, had, had souvenirs, and they were playing with them. Uh, one, one of them was a, a, a little hand uh, uh, flashlight that you could put on a keychain, and I can't remember what the other one was, but I had this, and I had to wait for weeks uh, <laughs> to get that, and I tore it open. And, and Disney even did the offer that if you did animation, you could send it to the Disney Studios, and for free, they would film it and oh send it gosh. back to you. What a deal! <laughs> what a, I know this is like oh, and, and 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 again in those days, you know, you have the weekly Disney TV show, and you have the anime, and I'm oh my gosh, you know, and and then you know I'm starting to realize, geez, it's 24 drawings for each second of film. And, 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 and you're moving, you know, each one of them just so slightly, you know, and, and this drawing doesn't quite look like the one on top of it, even though I, I have it on top and I'm, I'm tracing over here and, you know, th this light is coming up in my eyes. So I, I can understand why some animators after a period of time, you know, had, had eye problems, but, oh, I, I was just in heaven and I still have the books. Today they all uh, they also had two flip books, uh, Mickey twirling a, a, a lariat and um, uh, Chippendale uh, rushing and, and catching some nuts that were that had 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 fallen, you know. And and so because you want to study those, so you know you can do your own animation. But I never, you know. I don't know what what happened. <laughs> I think this is a recruiting tool, Jim. You you missed your chance here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought, my gosh, yes, I'll be a rich and famous animator. You know, it never occurred to me that animators never were rich and famous. You know, and no. and notice today that Disney doesn't um, promote its animators. I grew up, uh, you know, in a time, and and especially even even in the nineties. You know, everybody knew names like, you know, Glenn Keane and Mark Henn and, 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 and all of that, you know. Uh, nowadays, you know, if I were to ask you or ask your listeners, name me one of the animators who worked on Olaf in Frozen. You know, you'd look like a raccoon in the headlights. D Disney does not promote its animators anymore because when it did the animators asked for more money. <laughs> uh, I guess and, that's, and, that's uh, what happened you when know? Beauty and the Beast became a hit, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what happened is, especially like with Beauty and the Beast, people like Glenn Keane then got lawyers and agents to negotiate mm. with Disney. Disney doesn't like that. Disney doesn't like that. You know? 
So, uh, okay, too now, bad. Yeah. Now, now you end the unofficial Disneyland 1955 companion at 1956. So, of course, this means, Jim, there's we have like 60 more of these at least yeah. to look forward to one a year, correct? You, you, well, I, are you I, working I, on I'm, the next I'm one? telling people you have to vote with your wallet. If you want more Disneyland volumes, you have to vote with your wallet. Because if you don't buy the book, I go on to a different book. I, I wrote the Book of Mouse, which I'm very proud of to this mm -hmm. day. And in fact, uh, Brian Sibley, who, who wrote a book about Mickey Mouse, said, my gosh, Jim has stuff that I never even knew. You know, He said, this, this is the ultimate book. And, and Brian... Uh, new uh, P.L. Travers, actually, with P.L. Travers, wrote a sequel to Mary Poppins for Disney. Yes. They're not using it for the uh, the one that, that's being done now. And Brian Sibley is also a, a, an authority on, on uh, Tolkien and the Lord of the Ring movies and, and things like that. And so for him to say, this is an outstanding. And again, you look on Amazon, it's all five stars. But people aren't buying the book. It is a complete filmography of every film that Mickey Mouse has ever been in. It's Mickey Mouse merchandise. It's Mickey Mouse in the parks. It's the history of Mickey Mouse. So I had enough material for a sequel. I had material that I was uh, generating for just Ducky, which would have been a oh. companion volume on Donald Duck. Mm -hmm. But people aren't buying the book. So maybe those books will eventually get written. They're not going to get written well, uh, now. Right now. On on the other hand, Secret Stories of Walt Disney World, even though there are dozens of books out there with, with background and trivia on Walt Disney World, this book sold well. And right. so this fall, more Secret Stories of Walt Disney World is coming out. Great. You know, well, with good. another hundred to it. Another hundred stories. So with if Disneyland, uh, the unofficial Disneyland 1955 companion sells well, and so far it, it, it's selling pretty good. If it sells well, I, I have in my mind, and I've outlined um, two more books, one of which would be the unofficial Walt Disney World 1971 companion and um, the unofficial... Walt's Disneyland Companion, which would cover 56 through 66, which were the years that Walt was alive and uh, working in the park. Because now in 55, since I've covered a lot of the uh, uh, preface material, mm -hmm. I don't have to go back and explain, you know, certain people or, or, or certain things or, or why things were there. I, I could devote, you know, uh, to to the ten years that that uh, you know Disneyland continued fifty six through sixty six there because mm -hmm. Walt passed away in December sixty six. Right. You know. And you, you also have. Go ahead. Uh, well, you also have your your Vault of Vault series that we mentioned earlier. You have mm -hmm. your uh, a book I really enjoyed reading, The Song of the South and other stories. Yeah, and uh, and again, I wrote that book because I figured. The Disney studio is never going to write a book about the making of Song of the South. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. Do you think they'll ever release that in some fashion, whether it's a historic piece? Well, or... again, Disney considers it a no-win situation because Disney is such a visible target. You know, when anything happens, 
you know, Disney is in the bullseye there. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if they released it, uh, you know, as a boy, and I missed the Disney Treasures DVD series, but right. even if they released it, you know, as a limited edition for adults only, if they put on um, uh, Jiggy commentary oh. tracks, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, from, from leading uh, uh, black historians and performers and 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 all of that, somebody is still going to say, "Oh, look at look at this, look at this." And uh, I I know, um, for instance, uh, uh, filmmaker um, uh, Spike Lee hates the film, and Floyd Norman talked to him and and said, "Well, what is it?" And Spike Lee had never seen it. Yeah. But he hated it because he hated the idea of the film. I think mm-hmm. once people see the film. They see how inoffensive it is, and also um, because again, it's not taking place during the time of slavery. That's one of the misconceptions of the film. And and you have you know a little black boy, and his best friend is a little white boy and a little you know white trash girl, and they're all getting <laughs> along together. Mm-hmm. And that never happened in any film in 1947. No. If if you had a black character, they had to be in a separate section so they could be cut out when the film was run in the South. You know, and there are people in the South who don't care for Song of the South because it's called Song of the South instead of Uncle Remus. And so when the film was released in 1947, there was a lot of controversy in the South that, you know, it should be called Uncle Remus because that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And James Bastet gives such a wonderful performance. He does. But for Disney... It's not going to be released because if they release it, they would not be able to make enough money to compensate for the grief they would get, you know, uh, from other uh, other people. You know, for crying out loud, I'm still upset that they went through and uh, eliminated Pecos Bill's cigarette. Oh, yes. You know, uh-huh. w- watching Pecos Bill with the cigarette did not encourage me to go smoke. No, you know, it was like. Yes, this is a cowboy, and you know, he, he he's got you know a, a little cigarette there, you know, <laughs> and and so we are losing uh, Disney uh, history, you know, like in uh, Make Mine Music, you know, they they cut out an entire segment, you know, the Martins and the Coys, yes. because there, there's comical gunfire, you know, and now oh can't have that, you know, so I'm 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 wondering what other stuff we're going to be losing, you know, in, in the next, uh, couple of years. But I don't want people to bend over backwards either to, you know, that, uh, every heroine has to be strong and independent and, you know, doesn't need a man and, you know, the, the whole thing, you know, there's gotta be a balance. That's what Walt thought, you know, mm-hmm. there's gotta be a balance. And also that the film's, have to reflect, you know, um, the time period. So Snow White reflected uh, the role of women or the perceived role of women during that time period. You know, with Cinderella, you're coming out of World War II. You've had women who have been working in in industry and, and, and all of that. And so she's reflective of that. You know, she just, she doesn't wait for the prince to come to her. She goes, she goes to the to castle him. and grabs him. Right, exactly. Right, the films are all reflective of the era they, they're created in, mm-hmm. and it's not fair for us to 
judge them by our um, existing... By, by our culture, by the standards yeah. that we have today. I, I grew up in a time period where my dad smoked. Fortunately, he, he, he when he had his heart attack, he he stopped doing that. He went cold turkey immediately. But, but it was quite common to see people smoke. Now mm-hmm. it's like, you know, Let's get let's get the pitchforks and the and and the torches and 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 go get these guys. You know, it, yeah. even on social media today, we see, you know, people. Um, uh, I, I saw just today uh, somebody complaining about a celebrity having their child in the backyard pool, but it doesn't look like they put sunblock on the child. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> I grew up without sunblock. I'm okay. <laughs> Yeah, really. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, there are so many things, and you can't please everybody. And there just seem to be more and more haters out there who are who are looking for things to hate. And there's so many, and this worries me too. That's why I'm trying to get these books out there. Is there so many haters who were not even born when Walt Disney was alive, let alone you know, um, who 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 are hating on Walt Disney? Well, he obviously had a dark agenda, and he hated this, and you know, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. And and for his time, he was hugely progressive. Yes, but absolutely. he wasn't perfect. And 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 he and he, you know, uh, if he had known some of these things, knowing Walt, Walt had common sense and intelligence, and Walt would change. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, definitely. So, if you if you look at a quote from Walt from the 1930s and then uh, compare it with a quote from the 1960s, you'll see that he experienced both personal and professional growth. You know, if you get new information as things you know, you know, become more aware, it's only common sense to you know to make those uh, uh, adjustments. Absolutely. But even in that context. Walt, Walt was amazing. In, 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 the, in the 1930s, he sent out a memo to the ink and paint department that said, uh, it has come to my attention that, you know, men in the ink and paint department, you know, are making, um, uh, you know, inappropriate remarks around women. I want that to stop immediately. I want this to be a place where uh, women can feel comfortable and uh, not feel humiliated. This is the 1930s, you know, where we're, 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 people were calling women, you know, hey, sugar, and, you know, objectifying them and referring to their body parts and all that. And here's Walt saying, I don't want that happening here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was a man ahead of his time in many ways. So, mm-hmm. so Jim, people who want to read more about Walt and and the theme parks and animation and anything in Disney history, where can they pick up your books? Uh, again, uh, go to Amazon.com. Go to ThemeParkPress.com, uh, uh, and uh, they'll have a listing of all of my books and uh, descriptions. And uh, also, since I'm working with Theme Park Press, I'm very, very uh, uh, happy with the publisher there, Bob McLean. He, mm-hmm. He's published over a uh, uh, hundred books, including reprints of Van France's Window on Main Street and uh, a lot of uh, the, the Sully Sullivan book that we talked about. And Michael has been so wonderful, I'm going to give an exclusive to Diz Unplugged. We talked about more secrets of Walt Disney World uh, coming out. That'll be coming out this summer. 
mm-hmm. before Christmas, you may want to ask Santa Claus for this stocking stuffer. I have taken time out to do this podcast in the middle of finishing up a book called Walt's Words, Quotations from Walt Disney with Sources. Ah. I love Dave Smith's quotable Walt Disney book. Yes. But again, I don't know where some of these quotes came from in all of this. I have a Walt quote book, and again, it's divided into in, into categories, uh, storytelling, children, religion, quotes that do not appear in Dave's book, but every single quote is credited. And so these come from radio interviews, they come from bylined articles, um, they come, uh, uh, you know, uh, from uh, TV show introductions, all of this. So coming out by Christmas will be Walt's words. So if you go to themeparkpress.com, you'll see when it comes out. And again, go to amazon.com. Uh, remember, uh, I'm an orphan. Uh, I, w- I was laid off by the Disney company uh, five years ago. This is my only source of income. And uh, if you want more books, vote with your wallet. And uh, uh, there, there's uh, a lot of interesting uh, ones out there. Everything I know I learned from Disney animated feature films. Uh, uh, who's the leader of the club? Walt's leadership lessons, all of that. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're all they're all good reads. <laughs> do you have most of these, Michael? I, I have all of them. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to have to meet in person sometime, and I'll autograph those yeah. for you. We've we've met at the Walt Disney Family Museum, but they limit how many you'll autograph at one time. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, that, anyway. that's the Walt Disney Family Museum, and and again. It's also a much different place now since the passing of Diane, yes, unfortunately. It is, definitely. But it's still a wonderful place. It, really it is, it is. It is. Well, Jim, and, and, and this is a, this is a wonderful uh, podcast. Thank you. And, uh, I, and again, they're going to be editing out huge chunks of this. So <laughs> maybe <laughs> it, it's supposed to be an hour and we've talked for two hours. And... Yeah. Uh, uh, so maybe you should write to Michael and say, "Is there a place where you'll post the the complete uncensored?" I think I think Tom, Tom will work his magic to make sure uh, everything is heard. He's done that before. <laughs> and, and 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 Tom is is a, a terrific person. And uh, before the podcast, we were talking about Seven Up candy bars and pixie sticks. We so there's lots of things to talk about in the world. Oh, there are there are. So, Jim, thank you so much for making our celebration of Disneyland's anniversary on the 18th, which is when this show and, is and, going and, up. And we should. And and one thing that we should remember, because, again, Dave Smith always got on me uh, 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 about this, is because sometimes I can be a little casual, is proper nomenclature. Mm-hmm. Disneyland is not celebrating a birthday. It is celebrating an anniversary because a birthday can only be celebrated by a person. An anniversary can be celebrated by things and events. Ah, okay. Isn't, isn't that interesting? That is interesting. I, I, had to be, I had to be schooled in that, and now I sound very smart. 
You do. So uh, <laughs> that now your now your readers can sound very smart as well. Yes. It's not Disneyland's birthday because a birthday is a person. It's Disneyland's anniversary, oh, and all of those who listen to Diz Unplugged know that they can also celebrate it on July 18th. Yes, and by listening to this show. So thank you for joining us, Jim, on the Diz Unplugged podcast, Disneyland edition. Uh, we'll My pleasure to have me back anytime, there. Michael. Absolutely, we will. And that concludes this episode of the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition. Please listen to our other segments this week. Thank you for listening. And I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney. That's wonderful.